Welcome to The Stumbling Spirit, Contemplations on the Path of Resilience. Whether you realize it or not, you are resilient. It's your birthright. As you take in your next breath, know this truth. It's not only about your capacity to overcome difficult situations, but it's about your courage to do the necessary work to heal, learn, grow, and move forward. What you gain is invaluable wisdom. And it's through these hard stumbles in life that we often discover a new purpose that aligns with our spirit. My name is Fabio De Silva Fernandez, Reiki master, mindfulness coach, and mystical explorer. Join me weekly as the Stumbling Spirit podcast highlights the lives of extraordinary people like you, sharing transformative stories and beneficial practices of resilience to guide you on your wellness journey. My next guest is a kindred spirit, mentor, and friend. Greg Maxton is also an author, educator, and holistic practitioner. He has the gift of nourishing souls with his melodic voice and enchanting mantras. And when channeling the mystical energy of Reiki, Greg helps to restore and promote wellness for himself and others. Today we talk about energy, and we open up as we discuss the importance of pride to the LGBTQ2I community, not only for the month of June, but all year round. It's a privilege to welcome my first Reiki teacher, Greg Maxton, to the show. Hi, Greg. Can you mm. read one of your letters called Image? Yes, I would be happy to. Image. I'm not the man or the woman you thought I was. I'm not made in the image of the person you shaped me to be, for I came to this world whole. Though for you, for some time, I never existed. I was the reminder of the failure of your ability to show up in the way the world wants you to show up. But I cannot own that any more than you could ever own me, for all I can do is show up in the image, the image that I am. Thank you. That sentiment in many ways epitomizes the point of pride. What does that piece mean to you? When I wrote Shifted, I wrote Shifted over a whole year. And I think that each of the passages in the book, like Image, were medicine for me to help me in my healing and to, to help me to kind of re-architect a new relationship with my own perception of who I am. And I think that, especially with image, I had to recognize all the things that I thought I was because of external pieces so that I could align with my most authentic self. And I think, especially for this one, you know, when it says in the way that the world wants you to show up, I know the world puts a lot of pressure on us to be certain things, especially, you know, as queer people, we're often the focus and the focal point, the misunderstood pieces, the, the place to bring all of our queries for those who don't belong to, who exist outside of the community. There's almost this like curiosity and fascination and sometimes misunderstanding. So I think in order for me to show up as who I am, I had to kind of discard all of that and just really listen to who it is that I am when the whole world goes silent. You dug deep within yourself and the description of your book shifted. You say that it's a way to unravel the intricate layers of self 
and the perceptions we have built over lifetimes. What do you mean by that? You know, I have such beautiful people in my life that helped me to understand all the things that we came to this world, either through the ancestry and the the things that we carry in our DNA, or for those of us who really tap into our past life work, you know, that there's a lot of unraveling. It's only, I think, that when we recognize in a conscious way all of these layers that we're able to kind of peel them back and recognize what's underneath and what's always been there, that eternal space of wholeness coming to this world whole. So many times we're, we're taught the opposite, that you have to become something in order to be whole. But what if we recognize that everyone is whole just in being themselves? And that wholeness that you speak about, it's almost like a phoenix rising. You write another mm-hmm. piece in your book called Shifted, and it's, uh, it's mm-hmm. called Arising. Would you be able to read Arising? It's on page 57. I am equipped to deal with whatever is arising, has arisen, is arising, and will arise. I am skilled at accessing the infinite resources within the quantum blueprint of creation. It almost sounds like a daily affirmation. What do you mean by quantum blueprint of creation? Years ago, I learned this mantra through my work with Sanskrit mantras through my yoga teacher training. And it's the Purnam Mantra, that anything you take from the whole is always the whole. So when we think of the quantum blueprint, if everything is always there, then everything is always accessible. The idea of kind of tapping into the quantum blueprint of creation is that if everything that ever is, has always been and always is, then it's always accessible to all of us. We just have to be aware that it's there. Would you feel comfortable to sing that mantra for us? Sure. Om Purnamadaha Purnamidam Purnamudachyate Purnasya Purnamadaya that's beautiful. You did that chant in Sanskrit. Could you explain to us what it means? When you chant the, the Purna Mantra, what you're saying is that all is whole. This is whole. That is whole. Wholeness alone is. Anything you take from the whole did not become less. Anything you take from the whole is the whole, because wholeness alone remains. My Sanskrit yoga teacher, Hallie Schwartz, is fantastic. She's in Toronto, but she had helped to capture for us and help us sink into the medicine of that mantra. So I'm, I'm always grateful for, for those that bring these teachings kind of to us, because it's been with me ever since. And so shifted was a way for you to reconnect with yourself and become whole. Could you maybe explain a little bit about the catharsis of that experience to envision this book and birth it? I, I'm listening to you 
as you kind of describe it. And I think that like the idea of becoming whole, is it really becoming whole or is it recognizing that wholeness is already there? It's interesting because I actually started writing it when I was on a cruise ship over the winter break in 2018. And we were literally in the middle of the the Caribbean and like there was no land in sight. And I'm just like <laughs> feeling really untethered because it was days and days of like 15 plus foot waves. It was very jarring. It's the first cruise ship I had ever been on. It might be the last, but I, I turned to my cousin and I'm like, I'm just going to go sit down and write. <laughs> I had to find the words to almost like go through the existential process of, you know, what it's like to confront something that's deeply terrifying. As I started to write, like I didn't intend to write a book. Um, I think it was probably three months later that the the writing just continued to kind of pour out of me and, and work its way through me that I really realized that when I wrote Chaos, which is actually the first passage in the book, that the medicines that were coming through in these words were just too good not to share. Even if it reaches just a, a small fraction of people or even one person and someone gets something from it, I'm like, it, it made it worth sharing. But I'll tell you that the experience of kind of going through and writing each passage, it really does relate to, I know you said Reiki is part of my bio, but like, I can't describe, but I'll try to, the experience of, connecting into an emotion that almost felt like I was connecting into something far beyond me, that it was almost like I was writing without knowing what I was writing, that I was just typing or writing it out. Most of it, I was just typing in, in my notes on my phone. As it was coming through, I had no idea what was coming through until I kind of came out of that intuitive state and went, oh my gosh, <laughs> I'm like, this is whoa I was like yeah it's almost like riding that wave and as soon as it comes through it was just beautiful to kind of look back and reflect and be like wow I can really see this being helpful or healing or providing clarity to to so many others could you read a stanza of chaos for us I feel like each section absolutely has its own energy so let's let's go with this one so I walked through the chaos I saw my feet moving at a steady pace, slowly increasing. And as I picked up speed, this motor that powered this engine that I felt trapped in began to sprint in the direction of the unknown. Like a mare galloping towards safety, carrying the light of the energy of creation within her, not willing to give birth to this energy in the darkness, searching for an escape in the dead of the night where not even the light of the most powerful moon could reach. So I stopped and I turned, I turned inward. That's beautiful. A lot of us turned inward during the pandemic. We were forced to. I mean, it was so nourishing and unsettling to just be in the silence of your own company. I say silence, but at times it was really loud. I feel like in hindsight, we can look at it and laugh a little. <laughs> but I, I, I definitely remember those early days. I know for me, I was kept in purpose because at that time, uh, Right before the pandemic, I'd actually started my um, principal qualification trainings. And uh, in, in the training, we had to identify one practicum piece that would really lead us into that space of increasing student success. 
in what I had argued um, probably in February of 2020 is that staff well-being was the way to increase student success. And I had proposed creating a five weeks of mindfulness asynchronous program to build for educators to move from well-doing to well-being. And what was interesting as soon as the pandemic happened, I was just finishing that, that first course. I hadn't even signed up for the second. And I'm like, I have to build this. I have to build this and offer this. So literally right at the beginning of April, 2020, I started my, my second principal qualification course. And by the beginning of May, the five weeks of mindfulness course was up and running. And I was just building it day in, day out and offering it to, I believe there was over 35 participants in different school boards in Southern Ontario that had participated in it. And I'm grateful that I was able to tap into the medicines of all of my teachers and be in community with them and, and in purpose, because I think purpose is what kind of held me and kind of anchored me in this world. Because I think for a lot of us, being outside of the familiar, if we didn't have something to, to keep in purpose with, it was really challenging. I mean, I didn't want to make sourdough bread. <laughs> I didn't want to get, you know what I mean? I feel like people were definitely grasping at <laughs> what can I do? And I was like, oh, I was like that, that five weeks of mindfulness was over a hundred. It was 108 hours of an investment from beginning to end. It was beautiful. Not long before Shifted, you published another book. It was a novel mm -hmm. that was released in 2020 called Closet Tears. It's a coming out, coming of age story. And the mm -hmm. protagonist Gordy Mech is 13 and is coming to terms with his sexuality on the same day as his grade eight graduation. You accompanied this young adult novel with an educator's guide. Why was this story important for you to tell and why the guide? I wrote that book in its first iteration under its original title of Defying Gay Gravity. I, I joke that I was going through my wicked era. <laughs> um, which is, it was, I'm like, oh, what can I call my book? We had crowdfunded it back in 2013 and ETFO, the Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario did a six page feature article in 2014 on it. And I, I was invited into so many school boards and different organizational spaces to speak and be a guest for a number of years. And I was so humbled and grateful to be in that space. And yeah, the year following us crowdfunding it, 12 educators, not just from my school board, but from other school boards got together for free. And we just met up multiple times and just sat in that space of reading the book and architecting questions and trying to confront our biases <laughs> to make it not just about identity and coming to terms with who you are from a queer perspective, but just in general. And it was so nourishing. And I'm so, I know I keep saying grateful, but I'm so grateful for all of the people who were in that space to, to kind of create that. In 2020, I renamed the book. I renamed it Closet Tears and re-released it and have since kind of taken it up to speed from a, a diversity, equity, and inclusive education standpoint, right? Because we're always learning. So it is in its newest version, Closet Tears, but Closet Tears is a more aligned title to how I wanted that narrative to be seen. The book itself is kind of a love letter to my younger self 
to experience and work through the things that I think I've spent much of my adult life trying to reconcile being a queer person who grew up in the 80s and 90s, trying to to nourish the parts of myself that I didn't have the skills and the knowledge and the heart to do back then. What do you think is the cause of increased hostilities towards the LGBTQ2I plus community, particularly in the US with the curtailing of rights? This is such a big question and a very important one, but I don't have the answer. I think that we live in a time where people think that they can control others and they're using systems to do that, whether it's legal systems, whether it's educational systems, whether it's healthcare systems. These systems can be so expertly architected to either include or disclude groups of people. And as much as I think my early work around social justice education was identifying personal acts of racism or homophobia or transphobia or whatever, insert oppressed group into that scenario, right? But it wasn't until I kind of took a breath and took a step back and recognized Systemic actions are the louder ones because these systems existed before any of us were born. And these systems will exist long after we've gone. And if we don't reform the systems, then how are public attitudes? How is consciousness? I I say social consciousness because that's kind of how I align as an educator now. It's really trying to elevate, to call people in, to call people forward in this work, to, to help them to understand that. Absolutely, can people have their own beliefs, but they're yours. Our systems are meant to take care of everyone, everyone. We can't use our beliefs to guide systems that take care of people who have so many more beliefs than any one person could encompass. So yeah, I'm scared, but I'm always hopeful. I feel hope is what grounds me in this work and keeps me in the helping profession. You and I first met in a mindfulness program at University of Toronto in Mm. 2018. One of the concepts that we talked about, and we still talk about, is this idea of compassion in action. What does compassion in action mean to you? And how can it be used to advocate for our community? I love compassion because of the actionable piece. You know, I know we talk about sympathy and empathy and each of them are important, but compassion really allows us to kind of listen to others who we don't share the same life experience and recognize that there's there's something that we always can do in order to offer the medicine of healing. And sometimes that's just the listening. Sometimes that is something more overt and actionable, whether it's buying someone's book (laughs) and getting it into the hands of a queer kid, like my first book, whether it's inviting people into spaces that people can hear their narratives and feel that personal connection. I know as an educator for a number of years, whether it's through 
indigenous education, inviting in different elders or different um, Indian residential school system survivors to come in as they're able and speak to students so that it's, it's literally, it's like, you know, how you know, at least one person, if you didn't know someone before, you know, at least one person, it's not what like Harvey Milk had said. It was the idea that, you know, call up everyone, you know, and let them know that you are queer. And I know it's such a, it's such a different time in the seventies. I wasn't around in the seventies, but I just imagine it being such a challenging time to be like, Oh, should I put myself out there? But if every one person is connected to at least one individual, then that compassionate response becomes innate. It becomes, oh, I know someone. I know someone who's Muslim. I know someone who is queer. I know someone who is Black and not for the sake of, oh, I know someone. Don't you know I have this friend? I know sometimes people can kind of be in that space, but it's no, I know someone in that I'm invested now. I'm invested in knowing more. I'm invested in helping in a way that I'm able to. And sometimes, sometimes it's just listening. Sometimes it's inviting someone in as a guest. And sometimes it's, it is more actionable. I know just last week in Collingwood, which is really close to where I live now, they were doing a, a drag story time reading at the public library, which is amazing. But someone I know who's an ally to the community had said, I'd like to go and help and make sure that anyone who's coming into that event with their kids, we can be that pillar of support in the community to let them know that they are loved. You know, I was like, thank you for doing that. Because sometimes I think we you know, and I'll speak as a queer person, sometimes I'm not able to be that person in that space to offer that, right? Because my experience with hate, for instance, or harm might not allow me to step into that space on that day. But if someone else is able to step into that space, it's beautiful and it's nourishing. And it helps me to understand as a member of the community that we have people who love and adore us and are willing to go into that space and hold that line for that day, but also in our friendship. You know, I've been doing a lot of thinking about this and I really do feel like compassion is the hardest thing for humans to practice in part because I think many of us aren't compassionate with ourselves. But also, I think that you were talking about these societal constructs, and these constructs separate us from one another. So what can we individually and collectively do to love more, care more, unite more? I think that, at least for me, and when shifted kind of came, came to fruition, I feel like I emerged on the other side of shifted not a different person, but I don't even know. I don't even want to say like a different version of who I am. Maybe it's, I entered into a new, a different season in my life because I had known great healing. And in me applying that self-compassion to myself and really taking the time out to sort through a lot of things that I think subconsciously I had just pushed to the side. It created a space and an agency in me that I didn't know that I had. By me prioritizing my healing, I'm able to be in community with others in a different way. And I know, I, I think I speak from 
personal experience that the more I step out and inward, the more available I become in in ways that even surprise me for other people. Well, that inward look is also part of the spiritual journey. So let's shift gears a little bit and talk about Reiki. How many years have you practiced Reiki for? We're just coming up on 15 years. For those listeners who are unaware or for those who have a little bit of an understanding, Reiki is a form of energy medicine that was developed in Japan 100 years ago by a mystic called Mikao Usui. It combines both source wisdom and life force energy to be used for the purpose of healing. It's a practice and also a way of life. What does Reiki mean to you? And what brought you to the practice of Reiki? So what brought me to it is um, I was in my coming up to the end of my first year as an educator. And it's really interesting because I know this conversation has also leaned into kind of the 2SLGBTQ plus community. But my first year as a queer person in education as an educator was really challenging. I almost left. I had met with a lot of intolerance uh, and homophobia, and it was very different to be on the receiving end of that as a professional and as an adult, when most of my experience with that was as a child, right? And as a teenager. So I had um, earlier that year, one of my friends had taken me to a spring equinox meditation. And it was at the house of this Reiki master. Um, it was my first time meeting her. It was a profound experience. And a couple of months later, I had reached out and said, I think I think I want to do my Reiki level one. It had been a, a, an extremely challenging year. It had tested me in a lot of ways. But from my understanding, level one Reiki is all about doing your own work and kind of concentrating on your own self-healing. So that's essentially what brought me to it. That universal life force energy in 2023 Greg's life, it means everything. I've spent years in temple community working under a Vedic master and guru. I've been in satsang with different leaders. I've been part of multi-faith community globally. Whenever we tap into one of my favorites is mantra, because it, it really is you connecting with that universal energy. You're entering into a conversation with the universe. Just I, the soul, connecting with that singular atom from which everything emerged. It's intoxicating <laughs> on one level, but it's the easiest way for me in this human experience to feel completely disarmed. And in this world that has us arming ourselves constantly, that disarming feeling is one of the best feelings because it allows me to be in the most pure and authentic form of myself with that, that ultimate energy, however people capture it. God, source, light, doesn't matter. I feel like it's beyond words anyways, <laughs> but it's just being in that space. Reiki accesses that space. I always had a curiosity 
of Reiki, which turned into an interest. And I'm extremely grateful for you to be my first teacher. As a practitioner, I'm always amazed by the experiences that I have, but more so for the benefits that it has for my clients. Can you share some of your experiences, stories that you've had as a Reiki practitioner? So it's interesting because as a practitioner, I am generally someone who allows people to come to me. So up until this point, just like yourself, you're like, hey, I'm looking for a teacher. And I think at first I had recommended someone, <laughs> but that individual who was one of my teachers lived outside of Toronto. And I think through that recognition, you know, I was like, oh my gosh, maybe I meant to teach you Fabio. And it was such a, I really appreciate you saying that. Like it was such a, a natural invitation into something that I'm used to being a teacher. I mean, I'm, I'm trained vocationally, but to teach people in this way felt very different. And I approach it with a lot of humility and honor. But I think that generally when people come to me, it's my experience that people are coming to me when they're in distress. So I have people who have come to me with depressive and anxiety episodes who just needed a couple of sessions to be able to find their way back to themselves. I've had more recently people who are experiencing end-of-life experiences. And I think my, my biggest niche is actually working with animals. <laughs> so I work with animals all over the world and have for um, a couple of years now, just by word of mouth. I was helping uh, a woman and her dog who um, he needed his leg amputated. And he's been going through chemotherapy. He actually just had his last session this week. And it's such a sacred space to be able to at once connect in with this animal who I've never met. This animal, this specific one is in Mexico. And to, to connect with the family and his mother and to help walk them through that experience and to, to just let them know that someone's here and accessible and able to listen and to provide insights and clarity, but also, you know, with respecting free will. I feel like my practice may always look different, but what I do know is that Reiki as a practice doesn't just live on, on my table with my clients, that it's imbued in everything that I do, even in the chaos of being a vice principal. You know, I've had people come to me, uh, my staff, and go, wow. I just feel like when we're having a conversation that you're you're just fully here, even in the chaos of the day, you're just fully here. And I'm like, yes, <laughs> because that's that's the presence that I can offer you. That even amid the the flurry of the day, I'm I'm here with you. Getting up in assemblies in front of hundreds of students, being in the medicine of friendship, I feel like that that energy and that connection it's it's working through us always. It's beautiful to be in, in session with people on my table or through the sound bath offerings or through meditation. And sometimes even with myself, I, I'm known for this. I think someone just said this a couple of days ago, but I always try and find the most echoey spaces and places where I am <laughs> just to be able to chant or sing something because 
like years ago, I started doing mantra chanting, but while tapping into the Reiki energy to allow specific medicines to, to be able to be recorded for people and to be offered as little time capsules for them in their moment of need. But coming back to your point of self-compassion is that I also like doing that for myself. <laughs> so being able to echo and have that reverberation in stairwells at schools or in open spaces or in when we had lived in Toronto and in that big garage where the sound would just boom. But it's just recognizing those moments where you can pull in that energy and just allow the vibration to just take you. What insights can you share to people about Reiki itself? Reiki is a journey that I think when people decide that they want to learn it or even teach it, that's so unique. It is basically every single person who comes to this energy will have a different and a unique experience with it how they use it, how they teach it, what they draw on to allow that energy to be transmitted. Yet at the same time, it's an energy that connects us all. So I feel whatever draws people to it, being able to be in relationship with yourself, right? Being able to be in relationship with yourself, your most authentic self is the medicine that it first offers you, but then being able to hold as you continue to work through, because everyone's always working through something, right? As you continue to work through that, you're able to hold this different level of space for others as you continue up through the levels that even while I'm going through my own thing, I can almost suspend that to be able to pull in this energy for my loved ones, for people I've never met, for people I may never meet but can only know on that soul-to-soul -soul energetic level. It was transformative. It was nothing like I thought it would be and everything I had hoped for. Our relationship with energy is so individual on one hand, but all-encompassing at another. All I have to say is you have to experience it <laughs> to really try and find your words and to understand it. I don't think it, I don't think I can capture it for anyone here any more than I have. Well, the angle that you explained it was from someone who wanted to pursue Reiki as a vocation or as a practitioner. For someone who's never been exposed to Reiki might want to sort of try it out for their own wellness purposes. What would you say to them? Reiki level one is perfect for that, right? There's, um, I know the first time... I had taught it. It was so beautiful to be in community with you and the others. But within that next year, I developed a 21-day self-healing that after people were finished with their Reiki level one, it took them through 21 days every single day doing something that helped to deepen their relationship with the material, but also deepen their relationship with themselves. And I think that offering that opportunity to really have the discipline to sit with yourself every single day for 21 days. There's something special about that. Years ago when I was in temple community, I believe in 2015, I had made the commitment to myself that I would meditate every single day for that entire year. And actually the cover of Shifted is halfway through that year. My partner and I, we had gone on a 
beautiful road trip down through like Nevada, California, all the way up to British Columbia. Like it was, it was amazing. But even through that trip, every single day, there was that commitment to meditate and be in that space. And it was so profound to just know that every single day I was making that time for myself. And that that was revolutionary for me. I don't think I've ever been that committed to anything that I've done it so so consistently. And I remember in 2016 was when that daily practice began to take on its own form that maybe it wasn't every single day. And that was okay. But I remember missing it. Like there was this relationship and this time that I had cultivated for myself. But I feel like at that time, that's when it started to become very ever so slightly. My meditative moments happened off of the mat and started to manifest in other ways. Um, and it would take years for it to to really start to cultivate into a meditative practice while I'm cooking, for instance, or while I'm with people I love. But it was like, it had its natural grace. But for that year in 2015, just like that 21 day self-healing, it's making that dedicated space, even if it's just five or 10 minutes just for yourself. And it was transformative. I mean, that's definitely one path that people can take with Reiki for sure, but there could just be the average person that might want to go to a practitioner to experience Reiki as a client. When we think about that, there could be questions out there from our listeners about, well, when would I seek a Reiki practitioner? So do you have some mm -hmm. comments on that? I know that Reiki, especially what brings a lot of people to it is just the, to deal with stress and to feel that sense of relaxation. I feel that, you know, there's so many people who are skilled with Reiki who have their own experiences and their own understandings, that being able to seek someone else who you feel aligned with, that is able to offer you that space to really just feel more aligned. Sometimes I feel like, depending on where people are with their own self-awareness, they may not know what they need just so they need something and they need some support, you know, from a therapeutic relationship. Absolutely. Therapists offer beautiful things, just like medical doctors offer certain things and Reiki practitioners also offer a certain thing. So if it's, I don't know what I need, but I feel like there's something that may be misaligned that I'd like to, to feel more in touch with who I am. I'd like to feel more relaxed, even if you can't even describe it or can't even pinpoint it. Part of the beauty, and I've seen this countless times just in my own sessions with clients where I'm like, in our conversation and through the session and then in our debrief after, people are like, oh my gosh, that's the thing. I can't believe that you were able to pick up on that. And I just sense what was already there, <laughs> right? Intuitively, you're just like, oh, wow, whoa, let's just hold this for a little bit. Do you know what I mean? So it's 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 so beautiful for people to experience that relationship with a Reiki practitioner who, whether it's one session, whether it's monthly sessions, whether it's seasonal sessions, it doesn't matter. But it's that that person that you can call on who has these gifts to be able to share them with others and to help them kind of enter into that space that 
where they need just a little bit of that gentle, loving support. What I find really fascinating is some clients I will work with that's exclusively mindfulness and other clients I work exclusively where it's Reiki and sometimes it's a mixture of both. And what I find is there are similar outcomes. It's this release or relief or loosening of that physical tension, of that emotional tension. And sometimes that could translate into a reduction of pain a reduction of anxiety, feeling more rested, having better sleep. There are two different modalities, but sometimes have similar outcomes. And I find that really amazing. It's really interesting because it makes me think in, in my yoga training, we, we talk about the pancha koshas. Pancha means five and koshas are the layers or the sheaths. And they're sheaths that we pierce through in order to access our our truest, most authentic self. The first layer is the physical layer. So if you think of like meditation, you think of like stabilizing the body first. Then there is kind of that breath layer. So it's really, again, anchoring ourselves in our breath. And then there is the mind layer. So as our thoughts journey as they may, stabilizing our thoughts. And then we have the wisdom layer which kind of is that embodied mind, that sense, that connection. And then we have the ananda, the kosha around bliss, where you reach that bliss state. But even bliss needs to be transcended in order for us to access our truest self. And it's not a linear relationship. We're constantly swimming between all of these. But when we think about Reiki and mindfulness, there is such a beautiful overlapping You know, if we can stabilize that third layer, that mind and our relationship with it, that first layer experiences the benefits. Our body, our breath, this what circulates within our body. Yeah, it's also dynamic. I love that you use both of those modalities and allow them to show up in very unique ways for your clients. It's cool. What does resilience mean to you? So I I have an interesting relationship with this word. Only because in education, it's being used, if not overused. And let me, let me just explain kind of where I'm at in my thinking and help capture it for you. But it's, it's the idea that as, especially as someone who's queer and anyone who experiences life, let's just say differently, that there's almost this assumption that we need to be resilient that resiliency is something that we must cultivate and that people who don't experience oppression, who may sit in spaces of privilege more, don't have to because resilience is a byproduct of maybe experienced and challenges that we've gone through in our lives. I don't know what the answer is these days. I just know that when people, especially in my position as an administrator, right? And, and what I've even faced in this last year, being in a new board, just the idea of being resilient. I don't know. I, I, on one hand, I, I wonder if it competes with well-being because there's this idea that in order to be resilient, we can't stand up for ourselves and, for instance, say, for my well-being, I need this. I'm in an in-between stage um, with that relationship. But if you were to ask me a year ago where I would be, I think that resilience is this perpetual overcoming of challenges that we experience in our lives. It sounds like your resilience includes well-being. 
So what are your practices of resilience? I feel like we got to come back to that first passage that you had me read. An image is that there's always an image for everything. Even well-being, there's an image for it. And what I find myself doing is trying to breathe space between me and the notions that have been impressed on me of what well-being needs to look like. And instead, it's connecting with myself and being like, what is it that you need in this moment? What is it that your body needs? What is it that your mind needs? And asking for it, you know, whether it's in my partnership with my husband, whether it's in my relationship with my work, whether it's in company of friends or family, I feel like well-being is what helps me to be well in this moment, what anchors me in my being. And it's not, it's not something that exists in this external environment. It has to be innately internal or else I'm living for the outside world instead of for myself. And that just feels completely misaligned. And in a way, it feels like it's, I don't want to say revolutionary, but that's kind of what's coming to mind to really act in a way that some may deem selfish. But for me, it's being the most aligned and attuned, applying that beautiful medicine of self-compassion and to ask for what it is that I need because I inhabit this body and I inhabit this mind and I and my relationship with myself is the greatest relationship I'll ever be in. Who better to know me than me? And why are these practices beneficial to you? Imagine if we were able to live authentically always. I think all of the work that I've done, what drew me to Reiki, what's helped me to heal as a queer person, what's brought me into and out of education, what's had me seeking all of these experiences or being open to them as they sought me. It's just revealing to me who I've always been. The world got loud for a great number of years. And I feel like it's very easy to want to blame the world and say, you didn't let me be me. That's a fallacy because my relationship with my mind is my relationship. So all of these practices, all of them serve strengthening my relationship with myself. And I think we owe it to ourselves to do that because when we are aligned and can exist and operate from that place of purity then those around us get to experience the merits of those practices too. How can people contact you if they want to reach you? It's just through my website, gregmaxton.com. Thank you so much for joining us. I am truly grateful that you're in my life. Thank you for having me and even, you know, creating this space for all of us. Thank you for listening to The Stumbling Spirit, Contemplations on the Path of Resilience. This is Fabio da Silva Fernandez. Join me again next week for another episode of transformative stories and beneficial practices to guide you on your wellness journey. If you wish, you can follow and DM me on Instagram at The Stumbling Spirit. Until next time, take a deep breath and another step forward on your path of resilience. Hey.